Good morning. Yesterday we got back from a trip in North Dakota. And last night something happened that hasn't happened in over six weeks. Six o'clock this morning, our new baby cried, woke us up. That's not different. And I just said to Keziah, do we need to feed her? Because I, I never know when she's eating. Because usually I miss part of the, the, the night wake up. I'm usually awake for it, but not cognizant of exactly what's going on. But still nonetheless awake. But I didn't remember being awake last night. And so she was like, yeah, she's very hungry. She hasn't eaten since midnight. So that, that's six hours in my calculations. So I'm like, man... I prayed that she would sleep, not thinking that (laughs) I'd actually get sleep, but God answers prayer. So if you need sleep, my recommendation is pray. So I have no excuses. In other words, this morning, if something goes awry, I can't blame my baby because she did a great job and set me up well. So we'll see how how it goes. Please turn to Psalm 118. And we're going to be looking at verses 19... That's a 24 of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a song of thanksgiving. Obviously, we've just celebrated thanksgiving. And there's many things that we have to be thankful for. But this morning, I'm hoping to really focus on the main reason that we can give thanks. Psalm 118 is bookended with the refrain, Oh, give thanks to the Lord... For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's the first and the last verse of Psalm 118. That phrase, steadfast love, is actually one word in the Hebrew and has the idea of covenant love or covenant loyalty. This song emphasizes that the reason for our thanksgiving is the covenant love of God that he has shown to his people. And this covenant love is fleshed out throughout Psalm 119 in God's salvation of his people. So if you look at verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Verse 15, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Throughout the psalm, there's this focus on God's salvation. And it's the response of his covenant love for his people. And this covenant love is fully displayed in the temple. And so this psalm, the context of it is in fact the temple. So if you look at verse 26, we bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us, bind the feastal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So there's this focus on sacrifice, this focus on temple, and it's from the temple and the sacrifices that are happening in the temple that the song of thanksgiving bursts forth. The song of thanksgiving that comes from God's covenant love for his people and is manifested through the sacrifices that the psalmist is participating in as he's singing this song. And so as we think about verses 19 to 24, let's keep that in mind. That the psalmist is in the temple, thanking God 
for God's great salvation. And there's no better place than the temple to praise and thank God because of what the temple represents. And today we're going to do a little bit of work in the Old Testament. So you're going to have to follow with me a little bit. And because if we don't understand temple, we're going to miss the majority of what Psalm 18 is actually talking about. So we're going to take a little bit of a work through the temple to help us understand Psalm 118 a little better. And what I want us to understand about Psalm 118 is that Psalm 118 is about Jesus. You wouldn't necessarily see that right away when, you, when we read verses 19 to 24. But what we're going to see about today from Psalm 118 is that Jesus is the salvation that this psalmist is thanking God for. And Jesus being sent to this earth is the response or flows from God's covenant love for his people. Let's read Psalm 118, 19 to 24. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What we're going to see today is that because Jesus rebuilt the temple on the foundation of his death and resurrection, we must offer spiritual sacrifices to the Father through Jesus by the Spirit. And you might ask, that has nothing to do with Psalm 118. My hope today is to show that that is, in fact, what Psalm 18 is really all about. So let's pray and ask God to show us truth from his word. Dear Heavenly Father, We praise you. We praise you for who you are. We praise you that you have gifted us such a great salvation through our Savior, Jesus Christ. You have restored us to your presence, not because of anything we have done, but because of the great mercy displayed through Jesus Christ. Father, as we come to Psalm 118 today, we ask that that your spirit would, would guide us, would guide us as we look into your word and would reveal to us what you are saying and would drive us to Christ. Be with our hearts that we would be responsive and attentive to your word and be with my words that they would be helpful and accurate and build up your church and your holy In precious name we pray, amen. The physical temple foreshadowed restoration to his presence through the atonement. So in Psalm 118, like I said before, the context is the temple. The psalmist is praising God because of the salvation that is pictured and illustrated in the temple sacrifices. And that was what the temple was all about. The temple was all about a foreshadowing of what would happen in the future. And the reason why we need a foreshadowing of what would happen is because of Adam and Eve. Remember in the Garden of Eden, which is the first temple in the Bible, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God. 
They had close, intimate fellowship with God. There in the Garden of Eden, the presence of God dwelt with mankind. But as we come to Genesis 3, we quickly find out that something goes amiss. Adam and Eve break the law of the garden, and they're exiled from God's presence. The angels with the flaming swords, they bar the way, so the access is denied, and God's presence is separated from his people. And yet, even before God exiles his people, he gives a promise of how mankind will be restored to God's presence. And it's a bit enigmatic and a bit incidental, and we often overlook Genesis 3.21, where God kills an animal and he clothes Adam and Eve with the skins. You see, this is the first pattern of sacrifice in the Bible, and God is the one who sets that pattern. He slaughters the animal, he clothes Adam and Eve with its skins. Interestingly enough, we come to Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, right? The very next story is a story of sacrifice. Cain brings the fruits and vegetables. What does Abel bring? The lamb that he slaughters. Well, where did Abel get the idea that he's supposed to bring an animal and not fruits and vegetables? Abel was following the pattern of Genesis 3.21 that God had set. Yes, the hearts were astray in terms of Cain. His heart was definitely astray in what he was doing. But it wasn't just his heart. It was also his actions. He was supposed to bring an animal that was slaughtered, and he brought fruits and vegetables. He ignored the pattern that God set up and tried to do it his own way. And so throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's this theme of sacrifice, and there's always right and wrong ways of doing it throughout the Old Testament. God establishes the right way of, of mankind coming back into his presence, and it's through this idea of temple. And so you come to Leviticus 16, and we have the fullest display of temple and sacrifice in the Bible. And in Leviticus 16, we're not going to actually read through it, but what we're going to do is we're just going to, I'm just going to highlight two goats for us that are displayed throughout Leviticus 16. In this illustration of temple, the sacrifices in the temple, God directs that they bring two goats. The first goat is what we're going to call the slaughtered goat because that goat is in fact slaughtered. The goat is killed. The blood is spilled, and the holy priest takes that spilled blood from the slaughtered goat, and he takes it into the holy place. Remember the three sections of the temple? You have the outer court, the holy place, and the holiest of holies. And in the holiest of holies, you have the throne room of God, where God sits enthroned on the cherubim, sitting on top of this Ark of the Covenant, this box that was there, inside of it, the Ten Commandments. And so the blood is taken from the animal by the whole... By the high priest, once a year he could do this, and only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkles the box with the Ten Commandments in it. And the reason he's doing that is because the people of God have broken God's law, right? Those Ten Commandments have been broken, and so God's wrath is coming out against his people, and the only way for God's wrath to be satisfied is the blood sprinkled on those Ten Commandments, illustrating the blood cleaning and washing away sins so the wrath of God does not fall on his people, but the wrath of God instead falls on the slaughtered goat and the blood that is spilled on behalf of the people. The second goat is the scape 
scapegoat. We use this in common day language, right? We talk about scapegoats, people who, who, who take some kind of guilt on themselves that was supposed to go to somebody else. Well, in the biblical context of scapegoat, it's not too far from how we usually use it. The high priest will, put his hand, will con- confess sin and put that sin on this live goat. This goat then is sent into the wilderness to die, abandoned by itself, bearing the weight of sin. And so those are the illustrations that are given in Leviticus 16 of how mankind comes back into restoration with God. It's through the spilled blood of the slaughtered goat, and it's through the, the live goats bearing sin. Now, obviously, it's not the goats that are doing this. These are just illustrations. They're pictures of this coming sacrifice that would actually accomplish what's being illustrated in these temple sacrifices. And so as we continue throughout the Old Testament, we come to Psalm 118. We're in the temple. These sacrifices, these reminders of the spilled blood that that will bring restoration And we come across this idea of a cornerstone there in Psalm verse 22. In verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The psalmist is, is rejoicing in a day. What kind of day is the psalmist rejoicing in? He's rejoicing in the day... That the cornerstone is laid. The stone that the builders rejected. See, this is the cornerstone of the new and greater temple that accomplished restoration to God's presence. The physical temple foreshadowed restoration. Now this cornerstone of a new and greater temple will actually accomplish what was foreshadowed. You ask, well, how do you know that? Well, there are, there are two other references in the Old Testament to cornerstone, and they're both in Isaiah. And in Isaiah 28, 16 to 17, we see, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes it will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. Notice how righteousness is, is um, present in both of these passages. Open to me the gates of righteousness, there in Psalm 118. And here, righteousness is the plumb line. Plumb line is just a standard, a standard of measurement. So the, the, the standard of the cornerstone is righteousness. Of this foundation that's being built in Zion. It's a sure foundation. The cornerstone is, is, functions as the foundation stone that holds a building together. It's the key stone. Without it, the whole building will crumble. It's that key foundation stone that supports the weight of the structure. Then in Isaiah 8, we get even more specific. Isaiah 8, 14 to 15. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. 
this verse in Isaiah is quoted in conjunction with Psalm 118 and 1 Peter 2, both referring to the idea of this cornerstone. And interestingly, in Isaiah 8, the cornerstone is being styled as a, a stone of offense. So it's both. It's both a stone of salvation and a stone of offense. But Isaiah 8 takes us a little bit further. Because we might naturally be thinking this cornerstone is the, the cornerstone of a new physical building. But Isaiah 8 points us in a very different direction. And he will become a sanctuary. Not it. Not he will build another sanctuary, another building, but he. That he is the Lord of hosts. If you look at the context of Isaiah 8. So the Lord of hosts will not build a sanctuary, but he will become a sanctuary. There's the two different images, right? Ideas. So this sanctuary that we're looking forward to, this new and greater temple, is not another physical building, but it is in fact the Lord himself. So if we're looking at prophecy in Psalm 118, what we should be looking forward to, if we're in Psalm 118, is we should be looking forward to the Lord himself, who will become a sanctuary, who will in fact be and bring about the new day that the Lord has made this new day of salvation. And this is exactly how the New Testament unfolds as it develops the idea of cornerstone and builds on this idea from Psalm 118. So you come to John 1, and how is is Jesus described in John 1? John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word who we know is Jesus became flesh. So the Son of God became flesh. That's exactly what we celebrate. Now that we've passed Thanksgiving, we can, we can now celebrate Christmas, right? According to our good friend Cody. The word has become flesh. But that word dwelt literally is tabernacle. It's temple. This word will not only be with us, it will, the word will tabernacle with us. You see, this, the presence of God that has been separated from his people, the whole temple structure really separated God's presence in order that people could have some access to God. Because of their sin, they couldn't come directly to God. The holy God cannot dwell with sinful man. So the temple is this picture of how sinful man can enter into God's presence. And now we have the reverse happening, right? Instead of man coming back to God's presence, we have God coming down and entering into relationship with man. Initially, through the birth of Jesus, Jesus, the son of God, becoming flesh and tabernacling, dwelling with mankind through his body. But it's, it's more than that. That's just the beginning. You look at John 2. In John 2, 19 to 22, the context of this is Jesus has just come to the temple and he's just driven out people from the temple, right? The money changers that were there in the, that were in the courtyard of the Gentiles. Incidentally, the, the court of the Gentiles is, was the place where the Gentiles could have access to God. But instead of bringing the Gentiles into God's presence, the Jewish leaders were setting up shop and doing monetary transactions, really shutting out the Gentiles from God's presence. So why is Jesus so mad? Because they're contradicting God's plan. And they're doing it through the use of money and sales. They're excluding people from God's presence. And so Jesus, what does Jesus do? He drives them out. 
And after this happens, the Jewish leaders began a conversation with Jesus. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered they had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Notice how the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are so focused on the physical temple. A common misreading of the Old Testament. The idea that what we're looking forward to is another temple, a better one than Solomon built, you know, a more glorious, more gold, more majesty. But Jesus totally undercuts their whole thought. But what Jesus is really being is simply true to what the Old Testament has said all along. The picture is not of another more glorious temple with more gold. He will become a sanctuary. The picture is the Lord himself will come down and will become that sanctuary, will accomplish what was illustrated in the temple structure and the sacrifices contained therein. And that's exactly what Jesus says to the Jews, does he not? He simply says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And he says this temple and they think he's referring to this physical building, but he's not. The building illustrated the person. And Jesus fulfilled that picture. That's what he's saying. The temple is the temple of his body and they will destroy, they will slay Jesus. But in three days, Jesus will rise again. Jesus will build a new temple and he'll build that new temple on the foundation of himself, the cornerstone that the builders, the Pharisees, rejected. Jesus would bring the salvation that is so pictured and illustrated throughout the temple sacrifices. You see, Jesus not only housed the presence of God in his person, but he restored his people to the presence of God through his atonement sacrifice. So Jesus tells them what he's going to do. And then at the end of the gospels, right? Jesus dies. He hangs on that cross. He's the slaughtered goat, right? He spills his blood. Instead of the wrath of God falling on sinners, Jesus hangs there and absorbs the wrath of God, spilling his blood to cleanse away sin. And where did Jesus do this? Outside Jerusalem, outside the camp, abandoned in the wilderness, bearing the weight of sin like that second scapegoat, right? So Jesus is both the slaughtered goat and the scapegoat. The pictures of atonement in Leviticus 16. And what is Jesus? One of the things Jesus cries out on the cross My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's abandonment on the cross, right? Christ is abandoned by God because he's bearing the weight of sin. And so he cries out. And so in Jesus' death, he fulfills the sacrifice. He bears the wrath of God. He cleanses away sin. And then he raises again three days later, showing his power and his victory over sin and death. And so in Acts 4, 10 to 12, This is how the apostles reflect on the work of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Notice the apostles bring together all the threads of Psalm 118 as they preach to the builders, the Pharisees, who have rejected Christ. They refer to the cornerstone as the Christ who was killed and was raised again three days later, just like what Jesus said in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone who lays a new foundation for a new temple, we find salvation. What is the gate of righteousness? It's the cross, right? In Psalm 118 there. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous to enter through it. What is this is the gate of the Lord? Well, it's the foundation of the cornerstone, but it's the cross of Christ through which we can enter the true temple of Jesus' body. So we see that Jesus relocates the temple to his body through his priestly intercession based on his resurrection. In Hebrews 9, 23 to 24, Hebrews dwelling on this concept of temple. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see, Christ has restored us to his presence. First through his death and resurrection, laying the foundation of the new and greater temple, but it didn't stop there. It continues in his continued intercession for his people. That makes sense, right? The high priest would go into the temple, that holy of holies, once a year. But Hebrews elsewhere makes the argument that whereas the high priest could only go in once a year, and because of his sin, he had to make atonement for his sin as well. Jesus Christ, the true high priest, the perfect high priest, goes into the, into the Holy of Holies all the time. He's not barred from God's presence because he is the Son of God. In Christ, the fullness of glory is displayed Christ intercedes for his people as their priest because he's the new temple. He's the new priest. He's the greater sacrifices. Everything that the temple and the sacrifice point to, Christ fulfills. And he goes into, he, after he re, was resurrected, he ascended into heaven to continue his priestly temple work on our behalf. And so in Hebrews 10, 19 to 20, Hebrews continues, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Brothers and sisters, we have access to the temple. We don't have to go to a physical building and we don't have to wait once a year for atonement to be illustrated for us. The atonement has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. He's entered the holy places. Remember when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross? The curtain was torn in two. The curtain would bar mankind from God's presence because of their sin, man's sin. But now through Christ, that curtain is torn away. And it's not that physical curtain, but it's the curtain of Christ's body that was torn, right? Torn and bloodied. 
And it's through the torn death of Christ that we enter into the new temple. The gates of righteousness are open. The curtain has been torn. And it's through the body of Jesus. Jesus becomes the sanctuary as the cornerstone of the new and greater temple of his body through his death and resurrection. And in his death and resurrection, we have salvation. Because Jesus rebuilt the temple and the foundation of his death and resurrection, we must offer spiritual sacrifices to the Father through Jesus by the Spirit. So if Christ has laid the foundation for a new temple, what is the structure of the new temple? Well, the New Testament explains that for us. Christ being the foundation, the cornerstone, who then is the structure, the building, the walls of this new temple? If you look at Ephesians 2, 18 to 22, there on the screen, for through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, and him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, again, referring back to Psalm 118, Paul makes the argument that Jesus is the cornerstone He's the foundation. And from that foundation of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, what grows up? The church grows up into a holy temple. So the foundation of the new temple is Jesus Christ and the building is the church, right? Well, how is that possible? Well, it's because we are united to Christ, right? If you've believed in Jesus Christ, you are united to Christ. So if Christ is the cornerstone of the temple, and we're united to Christ, we are in fact then also the temple because we are united to the temple. And so Paul's whole argument in Ephesians 2 is that that distance has been broken down between God and mankind. Jesus has brought us back into God's presence. He's laid the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. He's laid the foundation of the new temple and he's building us into a holy temple into the Lord. And he's doing it by the Spirit. See, that's why Christ sent the Spirit. In Acts 2, the Spirit of God indwells all believers. Why? Because we're the temple. And the temple is the place where God's presence dwelt. And so now, as the temple, we are the place where, that, where God's presence dwells. We've been filled with God's presence through the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit, we're being grown into the temple of God based on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Peter gives us a bit more information as he fleshes out this idea. Well, then if we are the temple, how does that work? Well, Peter helps us understand that. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he goes on to talk about the stumbling, just as was said in Isaiah 8. But for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. Exactly as prophesied in Isaiah 28, that there would be in Zion a cornerstone, a sure foundation. And so that's Jesus. And First Peter tells us, well, how do we build on that foundation of Jesus? How do we grow up into a holy temple that, as Ephesians reflects back on Psalm 118? We do it by offering spiritual sacrifices because we are now a new priesthood because we have a new temple. Jesus Christ, the new high priest interceding for us now, has made us priests and we're to offer sacrifices. What are those spiritual sacrifices that we're supposed to offer? We're not going to give an exhaustive list because that would be basically reading most of the New Testament, which we're not going to do, by the way. But you can find evidences of spiritual sacrifices throughout, whether you're talking about the gifts of the Spirit, whether you're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, the one another commands. Everything we do in service to God is out of our priestly work. So in Hebrews 10, 21 to 24, we get another example of what this might look like. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, And it continues. If we can go ahead to the next verse. If not, I can just read it. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If we are priests offering spiritual sacrifices, We can't do that alone, right? If we're the temple built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, it doesn't work if we're alone in our homes. That's why the book of Hebrews is telling us, warning us not to neglect to meet together. Because the temple structure is illustrating this reality that we're the temple together, we're not the temple apart. When the Bible uses temple language, it almost always uses it in the plural. Why? Because you can't be the temple by yourself. The living stones are being built together. The illustration of the church as a temple built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ is pointing to the reality that gathering together, there's something special here. This is not just, oh, we're a club and we come together once a week, and we're, just, we have, we're a good community, and we're nice to each other. No, something much more, much more spiritual is happening. We're gathering together as the temple of God, which houses the presence of God. We're illustrating how we've been restored to God's presence through Christ. And we're offering spiritual sacrifices in the temple as we meet, as we gather together. 
You see, the gathering together of the church is not to be held lightly. If we refuse to gather with the church, we're not only rejecting the church, we're also rejecting the cornerstone, right? You see, we can't say, oh, I love Jesus, but his church is difficult. The church is always a problems, full of problems. They're all hypocrites. Does the church have problems? Yes. <laughs> is there a perfect church? We know there's not a perfect church, right? The church is made up of flawed sinners. It's not made up of perfect people. But it's made up of flawed sinners who've been robed in the righteousness of Christ. If we think that if we're done with the church, then you're also done with Christ. Because the church is connected to Christ. You can't have one and the, or the other. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, he's brought together himself and the church into one structure, the temple. And so if you want to experience the spirit of God, you cannot do it by yourself. The only way to experience the presence of God is through the gathered church, which is the temple of God. So brothers and sisters, we come together as the temple built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. We've been restored to God's presence because Christ has entered into the true temple of heaven and he has sprinkled his blood to cleanse us from our sin. We don't look forward to a new, another greater glorious temple of gold built by human hands. We look forward to the day when Christ returns and this whole earth is filled with God's presence. We meet now at, at, in gatherings in different places looking forward to the day when Christ returns and the whole earth is filled with his presence. Sin has been eradicated. And the slaughtered lamb of God reigns as king. This is what the whole history of the earth is going towards. Going towards that slain lamb reappearing in the sky. And when he comes, Zechariah says, all the earth will mourn and wail. Those who don't believe will be the mourners. But those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, will experience salvation. It'll be a day of salvation for those who believe. It will be a day of mourning for those who've rejected the cornerstone and who've stumbled over it in unbelief. As we think about these truths, let's respond to what the word of God has declared. We have three responses that we're going to think about. First, have you come to God through Christ to receive salvation through faith in his death and resurrection? If you're here today and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, well, you are outside of God's temple. You are sitting under the wrath of God because the sacrifice has not covered you. Come to Christ, the cornerstone of a new temple. Enter through the gates of righteousness, that is, through the blood of Christ, and be robed in Christ's righteousness. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, don't build on another foundation that offers another way to God's presence. There's only one foundation for us to build upon, right? That is Christ, the cornerstone, the foundation. There's other ideas out there for how to build 
But friends, we must build on the foundation of Christ. Find a church that preaches Christ. There are other things to preach, right? We can preach, we can preach health and wealth. We can preach a comfortable and welcoming environment that refuses to talk about sin and refuses to talk about God's wrath because those are just negative. That's the wrong foundation. If we don't talk about God's wrath and we just talk about God's love, we have no love to talk about. We misrepresent the truth and we're missing the foundation of Christ. Choose a church that builds correctly on the foundation of Christ and the truth of his word. Don't build on another foundation. Second, do you rejoice in thanksgiving of what Christ has done to restore you to God's presence? That may be the most obvious response to Psalm 118. Rejoice. If you've been restored to God's presence, this is a day of rejoicing. It's a day of rejoicing because when Christ rose again and entered into into the heavens, he brought us back into the presence of God to dwell again with him. What more is there to be thankful for than the fact that our sins have been removed, we stand robed in the righteousness of Christ, and now we can go to God directly. We don't have to go to a temple. We can come to God directly. When we gather together as the church, we gather right into God's presence. Weekly experiencing temple with the body. Let us rejoice. It's so often that coming together to do church or however you want to talk about it can become, oh, we do this because we do this. We get into patterns and ruts and we forget why we're doing it. And we lose some of the joy in the thanksgiving that's inherent in what we're doing. Brothers and sisters, it's so easy to focus on the flaws of those around us. Is it not? It's so easy to be like, oh, that person did that and this person did that. And I'm not like that person and I didn't do that. It's so easy to kind of picture ourselves as we're the good ones and everybody else just has a bunch of problems. Or we think of ourselves, we have all the problems and everybody else is so good, so why come to church? The reality is, is, friends, we're all broken people who've experienced the mercy of God and therefore we we come to gather with God's people because Christ has made us all one. Christ has broken down every dividing wall there is possibly, that, that could possibly be set up. Christ had brought us together as one body, as one temple, to experience his presence. God has joined us together. This is a day of rejoicing. And third, do you live out your salvation and join thanksgiving by growing into a temple of Christ by the Spirit? Are you growing up on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Are you offering spiritual sacrifices? Gathering with the church is an active, participating event. There are things to do, are there not? There's Sunday school that is taught. There's youth group. There's young adults group. There's college group. There are things to do, right? We look around us, there are people who are suffering, there are people that are hurting, there are people that need an encouraging word, there are people that, had, that have had a terrible week and might just not want to talk about it. But what if we actually probed into each other's lives a little bit, right? What if we came to church thinking, well, how can I bless somebody else today? How can I talk to somebody different 
that I haven't really talked to much because they sit on the opposite side of the you know, auditorium. Can I, can I cross that divide? Maybe sitting someone different so I don't have to walk all day that distance, right? However you choose to do it, friends, the church is, is a place that's supposed to be an active, participating reality. It's not just an event we come and sit down to, listen, and go back home. So brothers and sisters, this takes effort, right? It takes effort. The easy thing to do is to come, sit, listen, and think about all the things you have to do when you return home. And really all you've done is you've come and you've sat and you've returned. And we've all done that. <laughs> I mean, we're all human, right? But my challenge to you is that we start breaking that mold a little bit. And we start talking to people that we don't really know that well. And we start inviting people over to our houses and our homes. And we start living as if we are the temple because we are. And we start living as if Christ has changed everything because he has. We live in the reality of a new day. And that new day is grounded in the death and resurrection of Christ. So if we live in that reality, it should change us. We should be growing into, now that, the language of growing into a holy temple, growing is not a passive thing, right? It's not. You've seen a tree grow. The, the tree doesn't, doesn't stay the same if it's growing. If it's dying, it also doesn't stay the same. <laughs> Basically, it rarely stays the same, right? Either the tree is growing or the tree is dying. Something's happening here. So my challenge to us today is, Let's be the one that grows. Let's be the people, let's be the church that grows into a holy temple. That wherever we are, we take that next step to be more, to participate more in this new temple that Jesus is building the temple that Jesus laid on himself, the cornerstone, the temple that the Spirit dwells in. And let's be thankful that no matter how difficult your experience of church is today or tomorrow or next year, the church of God is growing. The temple is growing because it's not based on us, it's based on him. In Ephesians, it says, you know, it's by the Spirit that this growing is happening. And let's praise God for his Spirit. That we don't have to worry or think about the falls of others, but we can, we can glory in the reality that the Holy Spirit is doing a, a good work. And we may not be able to see it, but it's founded on the rock of Christ. And so we know it's true. Christ is building his church, Right? and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let's dig into, let's lean into the reality that we are a victorious temple. Not because of us, but because of Christ. The cornerstone, the foundation, the new day of salvation that Christ has won. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you, Jesus Christ, because you have laid the, the foundation, the sure foundation, 
the cornerstone of the new and greater temple. And you have brought us together as a temple built on you. Filled us with the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. May that be true today. May you change us. May you grow us into a holy temple. And may we joy and rejoice in this new day of salvation that you have worked. In your holy and precious name, in the name of Jesus, our intercessor, we pray.